Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Among the first to settle in the outer part of Bombay was the Shears family, well known for their amazing ingenuity. In this fifth of seven stories about her friends and neighbors, El Emanuel describes the inventive Jim Shears of Rocky Harbor. The very first thing I remember about Jim Shears was his telling me, when my grandfather came here a hundred years ago, he landed ten hogsheads of salt right on the beach where you're standing. There were only two families in Rocky Harbor then, and they said, What are you going to do with all that salt? And Grandfather said, Salt me fish. If I can't catch that much here, I won't bide. You'll never do it, they said. Fishing is poor in the shallow bay, crawling with surf, peppered with rocks, and the wind straight in from the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But the old man used the salt and bided, with his wife and four children. And his grandson Jim said, Come on up, see my family. On a rise in a clearing stood a big house. Behind it a brook, a waterfall, and a long weather-beaten shed, Jim's sawmill. The house was full of youth and laughter, a big family and dozens of friends. Here was the home of a man who performed no miracles of courage, who talked no fine words of wisdom, but who lived each day for what he believed to be the ultimate good, who created around his family a wall of security, belonging, and sharing, and who was light-hearted and full of the love of little things. A man tall, lean, with faded blue eyes and a thin, square-jawed face. "'Want to see our mill?' he invited. "'The boys and myself built it, cross-handed, though, because we built the house at the same time, and they weren't very big them days.' Towering over us was a twelve-foot, ponderous wheel of wood, Jim pulled a string, and the water from the falls was diverted into a trough. It poured over the wheel, and it turned creakingly, but without drag or pull. The little trout in the pool below hustled for safely in the overhanging banks. "'Now come inside,' said Jim, and there, wherever you look, were canvas belts slapping round, band saws, circular saws, drills, lathes, everything whirling, driven by Jim's water wheel. "'Now I'll show you something else.' He pulled a switch and presto, electric lights. Got my house all wired, too, he said proudly. The boys and me made the machine last winter. Worked good, too. Brains and hands they had, but no money. So with their phenomenal ability with mechanical things and their profound belief in their ability to improvise, they made what they needed. Music here. Jim grew up under the influence of his other grandfather, who is said to have deserted a British man-of-war, and with an assumed name lived uneasily, never knowing whether English or French lorded it over his bit of ground. Both were his enemies. Once, when Jim's father was a child, a warship anchored outside the harbour and sent ashore a boatload of sailors. One of them called the old man by a name the child had never heard, and then he said, so this is where you got to. Don't you fear. I won't tell I saw you. As Jim commented, I guess that's the way the best of us come here, if the truth be known. His father believed in letting the boys alone, so when young Jim said, I want that piece of land up on the hill, 
His father said, all right, go ahead and clear it. Jim did, and from the wood he built a 20-foot motorboat, as good as ever seen, and all before he was 16. And then an older brother, home for a visit from the States, took Jim back with him. Fascinated by the big concrete bridges being built everywhere at that time, Jim got a job making the wooden forms into which concrete is poured. And then something happened, as they were working on a giant bridge. When a 60-ton crane began to settle into the mud just below the dam, consternation turned to pandemonium. The pumps couldn't clear the water as fast as it seeped in from the leaks in the dam. While others tried frantically to block the flow, Jim looked around for something to make do. Here, he said, pass me that sack of charcoal. Taking a shovel, he sprinkled fine coke over the water. It sifted down slowly. Water pressure swirled it into the holes, and soon the dam was tight. The crane came out undamaged, and that was when Jim's career really began. He prospered enough to write to his girl, Come on down, we'll get married. They did, the first thing when she arrived, though Jim laughingly tells how they searched all night for a preacher. But bridge building goes on in queer places, and each of Jim's four older children was born in a different part of the country. Guess we'd have had one in every state, chuckled Jim, if the Depression hadn't come. And that gave Jim time to think. He began to remember that clearing in Rocky Harbor, and he knew he couldn't live much longer without the land and the sea that was deep in his bones. And Jim's wife confessed she'd always thought Rocky Harbor a much better place to bring up a crowd of children. It was a hard time, but they put together the mill and sawed lumber to build a home. Well, with the house built, the mill bringing in a few dollars, and the boys and girls growing up, they had long discussions about what they'd work at next. Then one stormy fall night, a great barge beat in on the rocks, and the 40-ton loading crane on it was given up for lost. Jim and his boys thought otherwise. With only two light chain blocks, their brains and hands and their knowledge of the sea, they made a runway from barge to a scow, using logs they cut and peeled on the spot. Between heaving seas over jagged rocks, they rolled and pried the crane over with poles and rescued it. The crane was restored to the grateful barge owners who told Jim he could have what was left. And one son said, must be a lot of iron in that barge, Bob. Let's get it. It might come in handy. So they burned the wreck and collected every last link of iron. While the boys built a lean-to near the mill, Jim made molds in the shape of anchors. The oldest boy wrought the iron and sold enough anchors to buy a tractor. Up to now, they'd been sawing in the woods with an old car engine. It wasn't that they despised modern methods, they just hadn't the cash to buy expensive machinery. So now they set up operations in a cove just across the bay from Lomond. Come over and see our new camp, Jim said. It's a dandy fit-out. I think they made that tractor do everything but the cooking. It took them to the woodlot, ran the saw, planed the lumber, took them back to the camp, and dragged the dressed lumber out to the scow for loading. They worked together, Jim and his four boys, from dawn to dark. Occasionally Jim would knock off for a spell. He'd ease himself down on the log beside me and say, Did I ever tell you about the pool back at Gross Morn? It's full of salmon. Let's go in sometime and see if we can catch one. He liked sharing with friends the things he loved best. His boys knew that, too. They said he was just and full of affection, and that he, quite rightly, too, thought his sons as good as any man, and better than most. 
When they made money with the tractor, Skipper Jim said, Now, boys, we'll share up. But the boys decided, We'll keep in partnership. You take the money, Pop. We know where it is when we want it. And just as Jim could rely on his children, so he could on his wife. I shall always regret her sudden death before I had the chance to know her well. I do know that with nine children and not much in the way of labor-saving devices, she was calm and full of affection. Her girls and boys all have the same quality. Once I saw them helping her to feed a crowd of unexpected guests. They turned out 25 meals without a single unnecessary movement. And what food! Home-processed moose meat and salmon, homemade bread, fresh butter and jam with thick yellow cream, and tea as black as your boot. John Fox's oil drilling operations at St. Paul's needed a new scow, a big one, 40 feet long, 20 feet wide, and weighing about 20 tons. Could Jim build it? Well, of course. So up the valley they went with the tractor, cut the trees, sawed the lumber, and hauled it to the beach. Now, a scow must be built bottom up, and how will you turn it over, especially when you haven't got much to make do with? Well, Jim got empty oil drums and lashed them to the scow to float her on the tide. The tide came in, the scow floated, but still bottom up, so the boys and he put their wits to work. On the right side of the scow they built a wall of rough timber, and against it they piled as much sand as they could load on the scow bottom. They tied a hawser clear around the middle of the scow and attached the end to their motor dory and then they anchored each corner of the loaded side firmly with anchors and long chains. As the tide rose, the scow began to tilt, so they put the motorboats full speed ahead. The anchor chains tightened, and suddenly the great clumsy thing shot skyward, turned slowly, and landed right side up. The whole twenty tons. They sat on the beach and laughed. Once I heard Jim say, The fellow I worked with in the States has made a fortune now. He didn't say it enviously, though, for I think Jim knows he's made a good life, a pattern I could wish for all mankind. I think if there were more like him, we could really believe in the dignity and rights of man. He and his family always make me think of the poet's line. Bless my hands and fill my eyes and take my soul to paradise. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode for vignettes of memorable old men in and around Bombay. Bombay.